From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I hope you are enjoying this time of year when the world momentarily focuses on hope. And while many do not recognize the source of that hope, we as followers of Christ have a great opportunity to tell others about the reason for the hope that is within us, the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. Well, coming up, a special edition of Washington Watch. You know, I like to take the opportunity during the holidays, when possible, to step back from the news cycle and explore a few topics in greater depth. Topics that I believe can help us better understand the times in which we're living and how we should respond from a biblical perspective. Now, I think most of you would probably agree with this statement, that the world is upside down. Right is wrong, wrong is right. You know, to espouse today what used to be the consensus in our culture will get you canceled and possibly hauled into court. There's a new morality in America that, all, not, that not only demands tolerance, but seeks to use the levers of government to force, not just accept, but to celebrate. Now, at the heart of this is sexual identity. You know, sex has gone from an act of procreation to the core of human identity in our culture today. Signature lines, which were once punctuated with abbreviations of academic credentials, are now being eclipsed with the listing of preferred pronouns. And speaking of academia, what role have they played in all of this? Well, guess what? We, uh, we're going to explore this today. What are the historical roots of this identity politics that has taken the country by storm? Um, how did we get here? And what, if anything, can and should the church, that's Bible-believing Christians, do? Well, as I said, we're going to talk about this and more on today's edition of Washington Watch. Dr. Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, will join me for this discussion in just a moment. The website, TonyPerkins.com, lots of resources there for you. I encourage you to check it out, visit it. Put it on uh, your browser and uh, visit it often. Also, the Washington Stand. This is where you can get news and commentary from a biblical perspective. So be sure and check that out if you've not already done so. And it is the end of the year, and this is when the Family Research Council receives the bulk of our financial support. Unlike NPR, we receive no government money. We do not have advertisers. What we have are folks like you all across this country that understand the value of news and information from a Bible-centered organization in our nation's capital. So thanks to a special year-end challenge match by Friends of FRC, your gift will have double the impact if we receive it before December 31st. So to partner with us to ensure that Washington Watch continues, we've got folks standing by to take your call, 800-225-4008. That's 800 800- Two two five four zero zero eight, or you can visit TonyPerkins.com and partner with us online. Well, earlier this year, Dr. Carl Truman released the book Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Now, it was a follow-up to the book The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and we had him on the show for a segment to talk briefly about the book, but I wanted to spend a little more time unpacking this and and talking about the foundation of what we see today in terms of identity politics. How did we get here? And how should we as Christians navigate the cultural shift that we're witnessing? 
will join me now for this conversation is church historian, author, and professor of biblical and religious studies, Dr. Carl Truman. Professor Truman, welcome back to the program. Great to be back, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Now, I want to start with uh, the previous book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which uh, is really kind of the foundational work for what you have done. Give our listeners and our viewers, if you will, just kind of the book's thesis. What What is the main point that you are communicating? Interesting question. And the book really arose out of my desire to uh, to make explicable to myself and to others why a certain statement has come to be intuitively commonsensical to most people in our culture. And that sentence is, uh, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm intrigued by the idea that something so strange, so counterintuitive, should now be so generally accepted, not merely generally accepted, but increasingly uh, enforced as uh, political and social orthodoxy. So the book is an attempt to answer why has that statement become plausible and to, to boil its argument down into into 30 seconds of sound bites, I would say. My argument was one, over the last four or 500 years, the, the self, our understanding of who we are, what makes us us, has become increasingly psychologized. We've increasingly focused upon inner feelings as defining who we are. Secondly, those inner feelings, certainly in the last hundred years or so, have become profoundly sexualized. We've increasingly come to, I won't say reduce our inner feelings to, to sexual desires, but to make our sexual desires the most fundamental aspect of those inner feelings, such that I am my sexual desires. Uh, and thirdly, there's been a politicization of this. Once you make sex, once you make sexual desire, uh, once you make uh, inner feelings the core of who you really are, then legislation that restricts those feelings, legislation that restricts uh, the legitimacy of expressing those inner feelings outwardly, becomes personally oppressive and becomes a matter of uh, political uh, contestation and a matter of uh, political urgency. So it's is the psychologization of the self, the sexualization of psychology, and the politicization of sex. Those are the three things that have gone on. So I, I, I'm going to start with that last one because it's it's kind of in the world where we do well and where you know our viewers are accustomed uh, accustomed to us talking about. And that's the, the legislation, the policy. You know, historically, our our nation has had a foundation for its policy. Um, you know, it, it is deviated, obviously, but natural law, transcendent truth. And and that comes from our Judeo-Christian foundation. So if our laws are coming from those sources, those sources also become a target of this new morality. Yes, there's a sense in which what we're seeing uh, unraveling is the, the old, let's say, liberal consensus based upon external realities and upon basic conventions of how to, to handle those realities. I quoted more times than I care to remember uh, Thomas Jefferson's comment about uh, debates about existence and, and belief in God, where he makes the comment, you know, it doesn't really matter to me whether my neighbor believes in one God, 20 gods, or no gods at all. Uh, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. He lives in a world where there may be disagreements over, over the divine, uh, the existence of God, for example, but the basic uh, rights of, of property and of bodily safety 
are ingrained into the very nature of the world in which we exist. We're seeing that overturned at the moment. And of course, that requires an overturning of the framework within which those rights were originally uh, thought to be. Uh, I would also say that what we're seeing with the exaltation of the individual self is uh, the last stage or the latest stage, one always hesitates to say the last stage these days, the latest stage of a rebellion against any notion of, of external authority imposing upon me limits, restrictions to my behavior or my identity. Well, you, you've, you've, you've set the table for, for a discussion of so much. Um, I want to go to that last point, because I think that is really at the heart of this from a spiritual perspective, is a resistance or a rebellion to any external authority. And when we're talking about morality, we've got to be talking about God. Yes. I mean, I was asked a question on a podcast run by a couple of atheists uh, about six months ago. You know, Is it possible to build a moral society without believing in God? And my answer was, I'm not going to say no way, never, because I cannot conceptualize every, every type of society that could exist. But the default position uh, is that there has to be some kind of sacred order in order for our social order to have any form of stability or longevity to it. Uh, when a society justifies itself purely on the basis of itself, it becomes inherently unstable. Uh, what the West has been doing for, for many centuries, I think, we're, we're now seeing the results of this, is, is assuming the, uh, the, the outward results of belief in God, stable morality, for example, while actually rejecting any commitment to the existence of God. And, and that lasted for a while. But now it's beginning to fall apart. We're beginning to realize that what we've done is, is built a castle uh, on air, effectively. Yeah, we're seeing this. Uh, the headlines, uh, we're, we're, people are experiencing it on the, the rise of violence in our street, the social disorder, the pathologies that are coming from the breakup of the, the family, that core foundational uh, stone of, uh, of, of Western civilization. <sighs> But this is not new. The, the philosophies that are driving this didn't just appear yesterday. They have their roots in history. And you talk about that in your book. Oh, yes. So, I mean, and no, no event or phenomenon in history is its own cause. There's always a background. In the book, I, I go back to Rousseau, the 18th century Genevan philosopher. But, of course, Rousseau doesn't emerge out of nowhere. One could have looked at the influences on Rousseau. But I think... Particularly in the 18th century, we see that the forces that are now shaping society beginning to, to gain in confidence and beginning to accelerate and beginning to work out more consistently some of the, the impulses that are now uh, dismantling uh, traditional society as we see it. So I start with Rousseau. I think Rousseau's emphasis upon the inner space, upon the the pristine nature of human beings in nature, that it's society that messes us up. I think these things are foundational to the way the, uh, the modern world thinks. Uh, it leads to a prioritization of youth, for example. The younger you are, the less corrupted and the less spoiled you are. It leads to child-centered educational theory. Uh, Rousseau is a pioneer, really, in the child-centered educational uh, theory department. What we see with Rousseau in the 18th century is the articulation of, of numerous principles that have since become 
internalized in our society than are the way we all intuitively think about these things. Now, of course, Rousseau's thinking in uh, his philosophy very strong in uh, driving the French Revolution. And in fact, last year, I think we had, uh, I had, I took time out to talk with Oz Guinness, where he juxtaposed the American uh, revolution, the war for independence with the French Revolution and, and the ideals behind that. What Rousseau, and, and of course, what, what he was saying is the, Rousseau's philosophy and ideology is incompatible with the type of republic that we have, the morality-based um, foundation that we have for our country today, or, or should have for our today. Yes, I think the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution is that ultimately the American Revolution has these sort of checks and balances philosophically built into it that respect uh, uh, the rights of individuals to be different uh, and respects the, the need to protect the weak and the innocent. Uh, things, of course, that are derived from the Judeo-Christian tradition, whereas the French Revolution, with its, its emphasis upon the will of the people, ultimately sort of has this, this rather, uh, what would say, nihilistic, uh, approach and of course the the difference between there was bloodshed in the American Revolution of course but the, the the quantity of blood shed in the two revolutions there's no real comparison at all we're gonna have to stop right there or at least push the pause button we're up against a break dr. Truman we're gonna come back on the other side of the break and continue our conversation dr. Carl Truman my guest he is the author of the rise and triumph of the modern self Discussing how did we get to this point of identity politics in America? How do we deal with it? All right, don't go away. We're coming back with more of this special edition of Washington Watch right after this. After the long election season our nation just went through, many Americans are ready to shift their focus to celebrating with their loved ones. But at Family Research Council, we know that this is perhaps the most dangerous time of the year for our shared values, thanks to Congress's lame duck session. Long before the elections, we began preparing for this moment when we knew leftists and squishy Republicans in Congress would use the distraction of the holidays to push through legislation that undermines biblical principles. You have helped us accomplish so much in 2022, and through your timely gift, you can help us prepare to counter the left's agenda and seize opportunities in front of us in 2023. Join FRC by texting GIVE to 67742, and your gift will have double the impact thanks to a generous challenge match. This holiday season, we must remain vigilant. Partner with FRC by texting GIVE to 67742 so we can continue advancing biblical values. Attention university students, are you looking to be equipped as a Christian leader and to influence the culture from a biblical worldview? Join us at Family Research Council for our internship program. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, you will grow personally and professionally. This paid 12 to 15 week program is designed to give you real world experience and to prepare you for wherever God calls you. Apply today at frc.org internships. Persecution of Christians is growing globally and becoming more aggressive every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares stories from those who have faced religious persecution and takes a close look at the tragic circumstances Christians often face due to threatening opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of real perseverance and devotion offer encouragement and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies behind the hostility and persecution. 
what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the plight of these faithful believers. It is important for us to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer deeply and do what we can to help them. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroicfaith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroicfaith. With FRC's Stand Firm app, you will have access to all of our content right at your fingertips. The Stand Firm app provides you with a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and Washington Stand articles. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that matter to you. Visit the App Store on your mobile device and search Stand Firm to download FRC's Stand Firm app. to this special edition of Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. Again, if you'd like to partner with us to make sure that Washington Watch continues, we've got folks standing by to take your call. 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. Some friends of FRC have put forward a end-of-year challenge match, and so your gift will have double the impact if we receive it by December 31st. Again, give us a call. 800-225-4008, or go to TonyPerkins.com. Well, here to continue our conversation from the last segment is Dr. Carl Truman. He is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Dr. Truman, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Tony. Okay, we were talking before the break uh, about uh, Rousseau, but there are other academics, thinkers, political philosophers that are really at the, the, the heart of what we see unfolding in uh, this identity politics that's taken the nation by storm. And some of the things, where did this come from? This has actually been brewing for a long time. Yes, and I think central to identity politics, of course, is the loss of, of that which binds us together such that it's overwhelmed by the, the particularities of our circumstance. And, and a key part of that is, is what happens in the 19th century. In the book, I, I draw on three particular thinkers, uh, Karl Marx, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Charles Darwin, though there would have been others who fitted the bill. I, I chose those three because they're particularly influential, I think. What, what do the three of them have in common? What they have in common is this. They, they essentially reject the idea of a a stable notion of human nature as having some kind of moral or ethical uh, structure, constant moral or ethical structure. They turn human beings essentially into products of history, and they uh, mitigate or eliminate the difference between human beings and, and other animals. And what does that do? Well, that really, uh, we might say, frees us up in some way to be whatever we want to be. And that lays the intellectual groundwork for much of what we see today, where uh, particularities of social circumstance, uh, uh, race, uh, for example, uh, become more important at providing unity than the underlying unity of, of human nature. Uh, the Bible, of course, talks about us all being made in the image of God, and that provides something that binds me together with people from Mexico, people from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, people from the, the easternmost uh, parts of Russia. We're all human beings. 
once the humanity ceases to be significant, the field is really open, therefore, for human beings to construct their own bespoke identities and to engage in, in conflict relative to those constructed identities. And, and I think the way for that is really paved by, as I say, uh, Marx, Darwin and Nietzsche in their different ways in the 19th century. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self, self-creation is a routine part of our modern social imaginary. Uh, explain that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think it lies very much at the heart of the modern American pro uh, project. What I mean is that we, first of all, the social imaginary refers to the, the intuitive framework within which we all operate. When you think about how we think about and relate to the world, a very little of, of our thinking about the world and our relating to the world is done on the basis of arguing from first principles. Most of us imagine the world to be a certain kind of place. We imagine ourselves to be a certain kind of people. And we live on the basis of those uh, imaginative constructions and of those intuitions that we have. Uh, we intuitively, I think, in the West, particularly in America, uh, we intuitively think that we're masters of our own destiny. We intuitively think that we can be whatever we want to be. Well, that's self-creation. Self-creation is the idea that, that I'm not given an identity. Uh, it's not something that comes from without uh, that I have to uh, live in accordance with. It's something I can think up for myself. Most extreme example would be the transgenderism, uh, which I referred to right at the start. Uh, when you think about it, what is a transgender person claiming? They're claiming that not even their body has the authority to tell them who they are, but it's their feelings. It's that which lives within their body. It's their own desires. It's their own instincts, intuitions. That's the really authoritative thing. And that really is the basis of self-creation. So, Dr. Truman, let me ask you a question. How does, how does society survive in that new, that, that paradigm? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's a time of year people like w watching uh, sports. We've got football games and things like that. I mean, what if we just went on the field and we imagined what the rules were and, and we just, I mean, it just wouldn't work. So how does society work that way? Well, ultimately, society cannot work that way. It cannot be a free-for-all. Uh, somebody has to, as, as you use the sporting analogy, somebody has to referee this match. And what that means is that over time, uh, certain identities will be deemed legitimate and certain some will be deemed illegitimate. And there will be groups, whether it's government or whether it's big corporations, that essentially decide who's legitimate and who isn't. So what we'll see, I think, in, and what we're seeing already, but what we will see in more dramatic ways uh, in the next decade or so is the emergence of uh, what my friend Rod Dreher calls you know, soft totalitarianism, you, where certain social norms are imposed. You, you have to, because they're so outside common sense. The only way is to use the levers of government to force you to accept it. And that's what we see unfolding right now. Yes, when you think about the, the enforcing of pronouns, et cetera, et cetera, within our society. Uh, yeah, this stuff has to be, you know, uh, uh, it's odd in that a radically libertarian understanding of what it means to be a human being will ultimately degenerate into a kind of soft totalitarian form of society. It's very, very counterintuitive to think of it that way. But it's obviously what's happening. Well, and, and I, I want to talk about that when we come back, about how 
we're getting there in, in, in the, the way that that is resisted by speaking truth. But before we get to that point, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about this is not just activists that are espousing the, these thoughts. You actually bring out in your book that this is deeply rooted even within our legal system as it's emerged from the academic world. We're going to talk about that. Dr. Carl Truman, my guest, talking about uh, his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break. Be sure and check out the website, TonyPerkins.com, and give our folks a call. They're standing by to talk with you if you'd like to partner with us to ensure that Washington Watch continues. That's 800 800- 225-4008-800-225-4008. All right, stick around. We're coming back with more of our conversation with Dr. Carl Truman right after this. It is so important for God's children to spend time with Him in His Word. But at times, knowing where to start can prove difficult. And for some, creating a habit of reading the Word daily is even harder. That is why Family Research Council offers their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily, so you can understand the nature of God, how His Word speaks into cultural issues, and grow closer to Him. We know that the Word of God is rich, for it is written that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And so it is important for believers to read the Word and apply it to everyday life. God's Word is powerful, but we don't have to be overwhelmed or intimidated at the thought of reading it. We can explore the Word with other believers so that we may better understand it and be transformed by it together. Join us by signing up today to get the daily passages and questions. Just go to frc.org Bible. In today's culture, men need a battle plan, a call to biblical manhood, where they can be reminded of God's design for them to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Curtin's new book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan for men on how to take on their God-given responsibility in a culture swiftly turning away from God's design. The authors present the Old Testament book of Joshua and his leadership as the focus of their study, asking readers to consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. Now is the time for men to take on their role in the family and society and truly live out their God-given purpose. To purchase your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us for this special holiday edition of Washington Watch. Our guest for today has been Dr. Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, Dr. Truman, thanks so much again for joining us today. I've been talking about the rise and triumph of the modern self, which I think is your foundational work, but Uh, The other book that is more recent that's out is A Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Uh, Talk about that book for just a moment in contrast with or comparison with uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. There's a huge overlap between the two books. Uh, The the shorter book actually 
finds its origin at the suggestion from Ryan Anderson, the uh, head of the EPPC, who read the larger book and said to me, I really enjoyed it, but there's a problem. It's too long. I need something that I can give to to DC staffers that they'll read on their morning commute. And a number of pastors had contacted me as well and said, you know, could you boil this stuff down so we can use it in a Sunday school? Yeah. Uh, so the, the book uh, originates really as that project. And and one of your employees, actually, uh, Joy Zavalik, now Joy Stockbauer, was one of the, the my research assistants working on it. So there's a, a family research council connection uh, there. Uh, and this book, it really distills the argument of the larger book into a, a more manageable uh, and readable form. It, it does uh, a few other things as well. I have a section on uh, a little bit more reflection on the role of technology in the transformation uh, of the self. So there are a few other things that, that I play around with in the book. But essentially, it's a distillation of the, of the, the basic thesis of the larger book. And what's the best way for people to get a copy of the book? Uh, I, I'm still sold on Amazon, unlike my friend Ryan. I was wondering about that. <laughs> now, I'm still available on Amazon and, of course, uh, via Crossway as well. So uh, you, you can get hold of the book through, at the moment through either of those outlets. Well, well folks, I highly recommend um, the book. Uh, I, I enjoyed it, and I agree. I've actually had people tell me, is there a shorter version of it, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? But it was so enlightening to me. I mean, these are things that I knew, but you just you connected the dots. So, folks, I would I would highly recommend getting a copy of The Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution or The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and I just happened to be reading it this past summer, when the Supreme Court in the Dobbs decision came out, I mean, just I just and I just happened. I was almost on the same day. Uh, I was reading through this, and you you comment on the Supreme Court case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and I had not seen this before. But you you quote from that uh, decision by the Supreme Court, uh, written by Justice Kennedy. Uh, the majority opinion written by him, and he said, at the heart of liberty, this is what he wrote, at the heart of liberty to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about, the uh, creating one's own existence. Yes, it's a remarkable statement. Uh, I mean, Kennedy really codified that uh, a large part of what I try to argue in the book. And, of course, it's complete nonsense. Um, the state has an absolute interest in defining, or at least in, in, in pointing out and codifying what it is that constitutes life and personhood. Uh, you could scarcely have a law code of any variety that doesn't uh, do those things. But it's a, uh, I use the word loosely, it's a beautifully concise statement of uh, what I consider to be the problem. And the fact that uh, this was articulated by a Reagan appointee to the uh, Supreme Court is, is fascinating, really. And it shows how expressive individualism, which is the form of selfhood I've been talking about here, is, is not a monopoly of, of, le of the left or of the right. It's, it's a more uh, omnipresent cultural phenomenon that sits very easily with some uh, very conservative sort of libertarian views and some very radical progressive views. So 
Kennedy's statement there shows that this doesn't carve up typically along normal party political well, lines. It, it permeates the, uh, the academic world. I mean, that we see this throughout the, the, the literature. We see this coming out of acad academia. I mean, I think that's, it's been brewing there for years, and now it is just like boiled over, and we're seeing it throughout society. Yes. I mean, you can see uh, transgenderism would be a great example. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, what is the, the least plausible strand of uh, modern post-structural theory or critical theory of which you're aware, I would say, I would have said gender theory mm -hmm. of all of the critical theories. That is the most nonsensical because there is clearly a biological grounding to the distinction between male and female. And yet that's the strand of critical theory that has become most powerful and most potent within our culture at this particular point in time. So I think one uh, that shows you one should never uh, underestimate the power of intellectual activists to press their case. Two, one should never uh, 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 underestimate the, the gullibility of politicians and perhaps the wider public in right. buying into things that are nonsensical well, if they happen to suit a particular purpose. You know, the, the scripture describes as a sheep. And, uh, and, and we see people being led down this path of deception. But I have to ask the question, where are the shepherds? And we're going to talk about that as to what should be the church's response from a biblical perspective. Also, um, I, I want to I go back to, to the, the court opinion in Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood because the Dobbs decision kind of pulled back the curtain and I think it might be what's excited the left so much that we're seeing today. All right, Dr. Carl Truman sticks with us. We're going to be uh, talking with him, continuing this conversation, so I hope you'll stick with us. Don't go away. Today, there are countless news outlets and so much opposing information. It can be hard to find a source you can really trust. This is why Family Research Council created the Washington Stand, FRC's online news platform with a goal to provide readers with honest, free, and timely news stories and commentaries, all from a biblical worldview. The Washington Stand is based in Washington, D.C., with a team of reporters who provide reliable information on the top issues of the day. They cover breaking news on the biggest Supreme Court decisions, share critical stories in public education, give updates on the state of religious liberty domestically and abroad, and more. The Washington Stand was created to keep you and your family informed on events that are affecting faith, family, and freedom. Stay informed and stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. Again, that's WashingtonStand.com. Are you a university student or do you know a university student? One looking to be equipped as a Christian leader and to learn how to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Join us at Family Research Council for our 12 to 15 week internship program. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, you will grow in personal and professional development. You will have the opportunity to work in a variety of departments with positions ranging from policy to communications, allowing you to gain real-world experience working directly with our experts. FRC seeks to guide interns in pursuing careers of influence so they can make a difference wherever God calls them. 
This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to grow in community and experience the city. Take the next step in your professional journey and have the experience of a lifetime. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. When persecution comes, will you be prepared to stand? Throughout Scripture, believers are told that they should expect to be persecuted. In John, Jesus warns his disciples that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. With that knowledge, Christians shouldn't live in fear, but they ought to prepare their hearts to stand faithfully in the face of trials. Most Christians in the U.S. feel far removed from the threat of persecution, but Pastor Andrew Brunson knows persecution well. In October 2016, Brunson was held for two years in Turkish prisons after being falsely accused of terrorism. After a worldwide prayer movement and significant political pressure from the U.S. government, he was released in October 2018. And since then, Andrew has taken up the call to urge Christians in the West to prepare for hostility. Brunson led an eight-part video series titled Prepare to Stand to help fellow believers. Watch this important series by going to frc.org slash prepare to stand. Welcome back to Washington Watch, this special edition. I am so glad that you are with us. Hope you're enjoying this time of year with family and friends. We're coming up to the end of the year, and this is when the Family Research Council, which is how you get Washington Watch, it is a product, it is a broadcast of the Family Research Council. We receive the bulk of our financial support at the end of the year, and we've got some friends of FRC who have put forward a challenge match. And so your gift will have double the impact if it's received before December the 31st. If you'd like to partner with us to ensure that Washington Watch continues, simply give us a call, 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008, or visit TonyPerkins.com. All right, our guest for today has been Dr. Carl Truman. He's been very generous with his time. It's been great to have this conversation, and I'm just scratching the surface. He's a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We've been talking about two of his books, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution and the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, Dr. Truman, again, thanks so much for spending time with us uh, today. All right, three things I want to get to at least in this last segment. And uh, I want to go back to that Dobbs decision for just a moment that um, I think, you know, and that was, again, the timing of me reading your book and then experiencing the Dobbs decision, the present Supreme Court kind of pulled back the veil on this creative thinking of the court and exposed it for what it was. It had no anchor in the Constitution and, frankly, was untethered to reality. Yes, yes, I think that's the case. I mean, one of the things that Anthony Kennedy's uh, sort of fantasy statement uh, in Planned Parenthood uh, v. Casey uh, indicated was it was a notion of, of being human where we are all completely autonomous, uh, and if we have the right to, to self-creation, as he seems to be stating there, then inevitably everybody else becomes, first and foremost, a potential threat to us. Uh, autonomy is, is sort of established at law, and all relationships in which we engage with others become purely contractual and, and based solely on whether they can 
uh, enhance our personal happiness or not. Hence, if a woman is carrying a baby that she doesn't want, the baby's a threat to her, and she should be able to get rid of it mm -hmm. if it's going to inhibit her happiness. Well, we all know that that just isn't true. Uh, we are always existing in relationships of dependency and obligation towards other people. And I think what the court is beginning to do at this point is to recognize that actually you know, the significance, we might say, of, of Roe v. Wade and of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, yes, it was significant for abortion, but they were also deeply significant as trying to codify into law an anthropological revolution Right. That simply isn't true and isn't workable. And, and, and thankfully, the court have, have rolled that back somewhat. How successful it will be in the long run remains to be seen. Right. But there is at least some acknowledgement there. And I think what we see, of course, is that the, the justices who did that are all people of, of Christian conviction. Uh, and, and that is not incidental, I think, to their, their understanding of what it means to be a human being. I do think there's a spiritual element here of rolling back Roe v. Wade and ending abortion on demand, for, for at least the allowing that in states, because it doesn't go back to the states. I think there's a spiritual element of, of the pushback that we're seeing, the intensity of the battle that is uh, flared up. But also, I think it's, as I said, I think it's because they expose the, the, the fallacy that you can put whatever you want to into the Constitution. I think that's what we saw this this uh, really strong push uh, to uh, codify the Obergefell decision into federal law because they realized it was built on the same faulty foundation. Yes, it becomes a, a kind of assertion of brute strength at that point. I think you know, and I think there's an interesting wider phenomenon here that if that the biggest issues in our society have tended to default to the judicial branch mm -hmm. over the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, rather than to the uh, the legislative branch. And, and that helps create the polarized political environment we're now in. It's, it's one thing to lose at the polls. It's another thing to have one swing vote on the Supreme Court change everything. Uh, so I think there are all kinds of issues emerging at this point that are that are fascinating and somewhat disturbing. Well, I think the reason we're seeing the court increasingly take on these issues in the last half century is a lack of political courage and will. Uh, they they want to sidestep the tough issues and they'd rather have the court deal with them so they don't have to because that affects their uh, their political future. I want to go now to this issue as we as we we see we were making reference to earlier about how people are being led down this path. Um, they know it's not true, but yet they're afraid to say something in this cancel culture. They're afraid uh, of the conflict. They're afraid of the ostracization that takes place. What should be the response of number one, a Christians? just the, the average Christian out there, Bible-believing Christian who follows Christ, and then B, their shepherds, their leaders. What should be the voice of pastors? What should they be doing at this moment? Yeah, well, I would, I would actually answer the question the other way around. I would say, first of all, Christian leadership needs to, to get its, uh, its uh, act in, in, in order. Uh, we need strong leadership at this point. We need uh, ministers who are preaching the whole counsel of God, and therefore providing their people with good, clear frameworks for parsing the various issues that will cross their path. Uh, 
typically at the workplace. I think that's where a lot of Christians are going to feel most yeah. pressure yeah. in the coming five or ten years. You know, do I use preferred pronouns? You know, not every hill is a hill that you have to die on. So Christians need good guidance from the pulpit about what the whole counsel of God requires of them and, and hopefully to instill a uh, not only right thinking but also discernment is to know, yes, this is a battle I have to fight. No, this is a sideshow. This is not a battle I have to fight. So we need strong leadership. We need well-trained ministers in ethics, I think, particularly in Protestantism, because the the basic moral imagination of the United States has been sort of broadly Protestant for several centuries. The Protestant church has got lazy in thinking about ethics. Suddenly, as that moral imagination is disappearing, we find that we're left high and dry. We don't have that strong tradition of, of moral thinking that Roman Catholicism has, for example, upon which to draw to address whatever craziness the culture throws up next. So I think we need to be educating uh, people in how to think morally and ethically. I think we need our churches to be strong communities because uh, there's, you know, if you're going to stand, if you're going to get stand when, when pressure comes, it's always easier to stand shoulder to shoulder with others than to stand on your own. And that requires a culture of the church as, as a community where we support each other, where we have each other's backs. I was fascinated at how the LGBTQ movement had become so powerful in a comparatively short period of time. And part of the answer to that is they were actually a community. They, they, they coordinated, they had each other's backs, they, they were deeply involved in each other's lives. Now, I'm not flying a flag here for the LGBTQ community, but I'm saying I think there's something we can learn from there, that strength comes from community. Yes, well, that's biblical. I mean, we, we and, and we, we saw really a uh, during COVID when churches were not meeting, we saw the the flare up of uh, civil unrest in our society. And I think there's a connection between the two. I think there's a spiritual connection there. But I, I, to your point on the LGBTQ community, you actually write about this in both works uh, about how there are there are fracture lines uh, within this community. They're not walking lockstep. In fact, some of their purposes, some of their goals are at cross purpose with one another, with the various elements of the LGBTQ. So there is the uh, the very real possibility that there could be internal chaos and confusion within that movement. Yes. I mean, ironically, I'm, I'm uh, going to be interviewed by Andrew Sullivan in the next couple of days for his podcast, who, of course, is a, a famous uh, gay Catholic journalist. And one of the interesting things about Andrew Sullivan is he's been anathematized by sections of the LGBTQ community for his opposition to transgenderism. Uh, and he's emblematic of what's going on. You have, you have the L, the G, and the B assume the importance of the physical, biological, sex binary. Uh, the T and the Q deny that. Um, what we've seen uh, thus far, I think, is an alliance built on the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. To use their terminology, white, heterosexual, heteronormativity is the enemy. As, as that has got weaker, so now we're beginning to see the, the LGBTQ alliance starting to fracture and crumble. And we're seeing people like J.K. Rowling who would be very favorable towards uh, the LGB, uh, standing pretty strongly against the, the trans issue at this point. So 
that reflects, I think, internal incoherences and contradictions within the movement itself. All right, Dr. Truman, we're almost out of time. This is a new reality. This is where we live. We see this. Uh, we see it in our schools. We see our children uh, being taught that this is normal. As believers, number one, we've been warned. Jesus warned us that there was going to be difficult and challenging times. Now, it didn't. It actually kind of did spell it out a little bit in Romans chapter one. Paul kind of talks about where the end leads. Uh, or where this path leads to, and and I think we're pretty much close to the to the end of chapter one if you follow the progression. But you know, Jesus over in John when he was talking with his disciples about uh, you know you're going to be hated, you're going to be rejected, you're going to get everything that I got. But you know what? I'm telling you this so that you don't stumble, and I'm and I, and I, and I'm telling you this so that you're you can preserve your joy. I mean, we're not to be. I don't think feel like we're embattled or that we have to hunker down, I actually think this is a, a great moment for Bible-believing Christians, those that are firmly standing on the truth of God's Word, because it's just a matter of time until they realize, those on the left and those that have been sucked into this, realize, you know what, this doesn't answer the big questions of life. Absolutely. Uh, I've said uh, numerous occasions over the last couple of years that what we're facing now is certainly a cause for lamentation. I don't think the, the changes I'm seeing in society at the moment give me cause for joy and rejoicing uh, uh, on one level. On the other hand, I think if we simply see uh, what's happening around us as a cause for lamentation, we're going to end up despairing. Uh, we mustn't forget the promises. The promises are to the church. We know how it all ends. So let us lament, but let us also think about how this particular moment in time presents us with uh, peculiar opportunities that can be used uh, for for capitalizing on uh, by the church. And, and one of them I've already alluded to, I think in, in a world where true community is collapsing, mm. this may be an opportunity for the church as a strong community to prove rather attractive to those who may not have listened to her message 10, 15, 20 years ago. So don't despair. Keep hold of the promises. Uh, understand, yeah, we're heading into difficult times. Uh, there is plenty, of course, for lamentation. But let us combine that lamentation with, with hopeful action and reflection upon how we might use the opportunities, the unique opportunities we're being given at this moment in time uh, in order to, uh, to advance the kingdom. Yeah, I, I, I just I want Christians to understand no matter how difficult it becomes, this is not the time to disengage. It's not the time to pack up and go home. It's not time, you know, to bury our heads in the sand because it's so bad. I think in the when the, when it gets the darkest, when people begin to to look for answers, if we have our wits about us, and as you said, we're building that community, others will want to join. I still believe a turning is possible that we could see our society and our nation turn back. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the thing about societies in history is you know, sometimes they commit suicide, sometimes they pull back from the brink. You cannot tell what a society is going to do until it does one thing or the other. And I'm certainly not willing at this point to give up on our society and say it's, it's all over. Apart from anything else, I still think that uh, in the West in general, and in America in particular, the church is in a stronger and better position uh, in terms of its its civil rights and its public presence than in many other parts of the world. So we also have a lot to give thanks for. Uh, we are not being persecuted here 
as the church is being persecuted in many parts of the world, not least China. So, uh, yep, lament what's going on, but remain hopeful and also give thanks for the many blessings that we still have in this country that are denied to brothers and sisters in other countries. Well, Dr. Truman, that's a good biblical note to stop on because uh, in Philippians we're told to be anxious for nothing, but by prayer with thanksgiving let our requests be made known unto God. And that's what I would leave our folks with is to uh, to be thankful that we still have those freedoms that we can use to preserve our freedoms and gain them for others. Uh, Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today. Great conversation. And, and quite frankly, we just scratched the surface. I, again, appreciate the, the work that you've done. Uh, eye-opening, fascinating, and I'm going to encourage people to pick up a copy of both books. Thanks for your kind words, Tony. Love to spend time with you. Absolutely. Let me know when you're in D.C. and maybe we'll get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Will do. All right. <laughs> Dr. Carl Truman, and I do highly recommend these uh, books for you, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. You need to know what we're up against, but also we need to look at this all in the context of Scripture and be hopeful and encouraged knowing that the Lord is going to use his people in this hour to accomplish his purposes. And, um, you know, again, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. It's a great opportunity for us if we are confident in what we believe and who we believe in. All right, until next time, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.